So we are continuing our second week in the book of Romans, a very fruitful, heavy theological book, but like we said last week, very simple in its understanding and statement about the gospel, and so we'll dive more deeply into that. I just wanted to kind of recap where we were last week. We said this about the book of Romans and what Paul was saying, only a church soaked in the gospel will live in harmony, and only a church thoroughly taught the gospel will reach out with zeal. And we said the purpose then of the book of Romans is the glory of God seen in a united missionary church and humbled together under grace. So Paul wrote about two purposes for the book of Romans for the church, that we would go on mission and that we would live in harmony with one another. And I can't think or help but think as Jean and Luke and Renee stood up here, that's exactly what they're doing. They're going on mission together to, to be about the gospel. That's what all of life is about after Christ redeems you and saves you. And they're forming a church that will hopefully live in harmony and love one another in fellowship in order that they might go and multiply the gospel throughout other parts. What a glorious thing in decades from now or hopefully sooner when Edgerton stands and says, we're going to plant another church here and here and here. That's what God's people do. So with that, we continue in the book of Romans. Are we living a life of mission and unity together in fellowship? And so what I want to do is I want to read from the rest of chapter 1. I'm going to read uh, the rest of chapter 1 from verse 18 all the way through 32. This is a heavy passage about God's wrath against unrighteousness. And it's also a passage that if you look at cultural issues and cultural sin, that you'll see very clearly spelled out in Romans 1 here. Let me read it for us together. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Listen to this. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts and impurity, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up their natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of righteous, un unrighteousness evil, covetedness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's decree 
that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That's a lot. So we pray. Ask God to speak. You pray for yourself. Ask God to open your heart and mind. A soft heart, I pray, and then I'll pray for us together. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the preaching of your word. Thank you for moving through a book in the Bible so often. As you've challenged me, it would be easy to fly past the really hard things in Scripture. It would be easy to just move past them. But Father, when we open your word and we preach through it in an expository way, in a systematic way, in an intentional way, Father, we're forced to deal with difficult texts and difficult realities about life. And so, Father, help us. Help us understand who you are, that sin needs punishment, that your wrath is against all sin. Father, help us to come to grips with the bad news so that we can understand the good news of the gospel. May you be glorified in this place today. May may you be with us as we look to your word. May you change our hearts, open our minds. Teach us, Lord, we pray by the power of your spirit. Thank you for Jesus. We pray these things in his name. All God's people said. It's not my fault. That is a thing I hear in my house all the time, and I don't usually bring up house stories, but I hear it, and my kids know it, and they're like they're rolling their eyes back right there in the corner, so I'm not going to look over there. And they know I can't stand it when somebody says, it's not my fault. And I said it when I was younger too, but they, they know I can't stand it. It was because it's this idea that we always want to shuck blame from ourselves. We always want to put it on someone else. We want to make an excuse for ourselves. We want to get out of the punishment. I can remember as a kid saying that as I grew up. We can remember many times I had brother, two brothers. We would get in a bunch of trouble. I can remember one time in the basement of our house, my dad loved fish tanks and fish, and we had a big fish tank, and he came home to only find all of his fish scattered across the basement carpet, glass shattered, and comes home and furious, who did it? Well, it was not my fault, naturally. So I wasn't involved in the fisticuffs fight with my brothers that launched a rocking chair into the glass. Yeah, I grew up in a violent home. And I can remember, and you, can, you know this because you can remember stories of your own when mom or dad comes home and something's broke or something. And I would remember my dad, he would... He would punish us, and we'd get spanked, and we'd have to, and we'd always like, oh, well, that's not the right story. They're lying to you, and it wasn't my fault, and this is how, and my dad constantly would just like, until you guys figure it out whose fault it was, you're both going to get in trouble. We'd go back in the other room, like, we'll just talk about this. Can you just own this one? I'll get the next time, or whatever that is. We'd come back, get spanked again five minutes later, and it's this attitude about ourselves that's always trying to shuck punishment. We're always trying to escape judgment. We're always trying to blame someone else, which is why I get furious in my house when one of my kids says, not my fault, because we don't want responsibility. But who doesn't know this from the two-year-old that you walk into? If you're a parent, you know this. You walk into the room, and two-year-old brother has a paint can and a paintbrush, and his little baby sister is painted from head to toe, and you say, who did this? And he said, I don't know. It's not my fault. That's who we are. 
And it's laughable because we understand it. But it is not laughable when it comes in terms to God and how he deals with our sin. It's not laughable when we talk about God's wrath and the seriousness of his sin against his, his people, his human humans that create, he created for worship, and we turn our backs on him. This wrath is revealed against it, and it's certainly when we just play it off or don't want to talk about sin or, or just shuck it as a responsibility, it certainly doesn't help us understand the price that was ultimately paid for it. We fail to understand grace when we just laugh off sin. But here in Romans 1, Paul jumps right into the thick of this. Right after he declares the power, the saving power of the gospel, that the gospel is a rescue mission towards humanity, towards sinners, he launches right into the worst news possible that a human could ever know. That God's wrath is against all humankind because of sin because we were born into it, because of the fall that happened in the garden. We are all responsible. All of us have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And Paul, right after declaring his manifesto that I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of that. That's what we're about. We'll go and spread that news. He says, he starts right away and says, this is the worst news. And you need to know this. The worst news. Because you must understand and I haven't said it in a while, that we are all what? We all have been stained by sin. Now, we read that scripture earlier, and I'll talk about that. In Christ, we are a new creation. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But we must understand where we came from. We must understand our need to be rescued from sin, and we will never truly understand the beautiful grace of what God has done in Christ until we recognize that. And part of that's just a growth. As I mature in Christ, I understand more and more how disgusting my sin is before God. And I understand more and more how good God's grace is because of the ugliness of sin. And so you have to remember here, Paul is writing in Romans 1 to the churches of Rome. If you go back from last week, remember, he's writing to believers. He's writing to those who are loved by God and who belong to Christ. So why does he start here? He wants them to know where they came from. He needs them to know because it will shape how they think. It will shape how they tick, how they're wired. And what was their purpose from last week as we look? I, I recaptured it to go on mission and to live in harmony. And Paul knows without a right understanding of sin, it will affect how that happens. If you don't understand how good God has been in your life because it's just a church going Sunday after Sunday, this is a pretty neat thing that I'm involved with, I'm feeling like a pretty moral person. If you don't understand the beauty of God's grace in saving you, plucking you from death, it will affect how you live your life in mission. It would be really easy, this is not about Gene at all, but it would be really easy for Gene to just be like, yeah, I could just coast here. I could just like disappear and do my thing here. But she understands the grace of God. So she's willing to say, you know what? God gave me everything. So I'll return to him my life in service. And it, under, it affects how you view relationships in the church then if we're living in harmony. If I believe that I am the most imperfect part about my church, how many of you say that? Like I'm the worst thing that walks in here every Sunday. Most of us don't say that, but if I think that in the gospel context of not like I'm the worst person, but I'm redeemed and saved by God's grace, but I have sin, 
That's what God has been gracious to me. We might just get along pretty well if all of us said that. You know what? This problem could be me, not you. But most of us in the church like to be, not my fault. Yeah, fish tank, mess. <laughs> Little anonymous connection card there. See what I did there? Don't do that. In the, in the offering box? Yeah, it's not my fault. You and I need to understand the nature, the weightiness of sin. We need to understand the doctrine of what is called total depravity. Total depravity, total sin, that all are completely lost and depraved. All is sinful. And that is the doctrine that I want you to grasp today. David writes in the Psalms that he was sinful from the time he was conceived, sinful at birth. Total depravity, as it said, or total sin in man, that nothing is good. Psalm 14, 1 through 3 unpacks this. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are, are corrupt. They are due abominable, abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there is any who understand, who seek after God. They all have turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Next week we'll look more deeply into that in Romans 2 and 3, but the fact is there is no one good. It's a biblical statement about sin. So when you and I are trained in the world that we are innately good when we're born and that sin is what corrupts, it's false. We are born into sin. And it is all of our fault, if you will. Well, what about the little, little innocent? We'll talk about that. What about the sweet grandmama lady who's like lived a really good life? We'll talk about that as we go. But all have fallen short. Now, I need to make this distinction before we move on. Total depravity is a doctrine as stated, but it's better understood as total inability. Sin affecting us so greatly in every part of our being that no one could approach God apart from his grace. No one could ever do enough to save themselves. We have nothing in us that's worth saving because of sin, because of the mark of sin. It is God and his graciousness and mercy that he looks on us. And so the moment you start thinking that you're pretty good is a dangerous moment against the gospel that you might have some intrinsic value about you. And I know that's not a very welcoming message that we come to church with, but that is the beauty of God's grace towards us in Christ. Not one of us can come to Jesus without some special act of God first. Jesus taught this, and we look at John 6, better to understand this. You should read John chapter 6 and just meditate on that all week. Jesus said this in John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It's this effectual calling that God must open the eyes of a sinner. He must unveil the eyes of someone who is caught so deeply in sin that he could never approach God on his own. And God, by his grace, just like he met the Apostle Paul on the Damascus Road, appeared, the resurrected Christ appeared to him and says, why are you kicking against the goats when he come to me and he belonged to him from that point forward? And that's what God desires. It's his kindness that leads to repentance, but it's his act. So all of us who know Christ, all the people Paul wrote this letter to in Rome, they realized, and we must realize, that God acted first. He, by his grace, drew us towards Christ on our own. We couldn't have done that. Totally unable to do that. Why? If we flip ahead to Romans 8, and we'll get there eventually, Paul writes this, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God. 
for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. I remember being at the Together for the Gospel conference in April of last year, so it's almost been a full year, and John Piper got up and he preached in this text in Romans 8, and he said as he was preparing, he was thinking about all the people that he would be speaking to, but he was also thinking about just people in general, that all people that have their minds set on the flesh are hostile to God, that no one can please God, and he said to all of us there, he said, think about the sweetest grandmama lady you know, who doesn't know Jesus, but she's just a sweetheart, 80-year-old woman who doesn't know Jesus, and he said it this way, hostile towards God. And it's just that idea, you look at that picture, and this is why we have to shape it this way. You look at that picture and you say, no, no, she's like the sweetest, she's been my neighbor forever, she's the sweetest lady, she's just like good bones all over her body, and he, hostile to God. Apart from Christ, a mind that is set on the flesh is hostile towards God. Does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Think of, think of yourself right now. All the ways in your religion that you have sought to please God. The ways that you try to do that. Now I'm saying, as if you're a believer in Christ, set apart, you're clothed in his righteousness, the spirit that lives in you, that's where our obedience comes from. But think of maybe even before Christ or some of you there that if you're trying to earn God's special favor, apart from Christ, you just simply cannot do it. You're always going to come up to a dead end because of your sin and only Jesus, only by God's grace can you ever come into a right relationship with God. A, flesh, a fleshly mind It's hostile towards God. It does not submit to God's law. It can't. That's what Romans 1 is saying. That's what he's unpacking here. Paul takes us all back here to the terrible news that we are terrible people who sit under God's wrath apart from the the grace of Christ. That's what he's saying. It's this interesting turn, if you will, from verses 16 and 17. He just turns on a dime. The power of God in the believer's life, the gospel, I'm not ashamed, this is my life. And here's where I'll start. The worst news ever. Why? Because he needs us to know what we've been saved from. He needed these people to know. It would capture their heart in such a way that they would go give their life to the gospel. And so he says right away in verse 18, God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, when you and I read Romans 1, the last part of it, what do most of us say? Yeah. Can you believe this world? Can you believe these people? Can you believe that's who these people are? Remember who Paul is writing the letter to. We love to read Romans 1 about all this sin and that laundry list at the end and say, man, that has nothing to do with me. That's everybody else. And God, God says here, my wrath is revealed against all of that stuff. All of the unrighteousness. Who by that unrighteousness do what? Suppress the truth. But here's the phrase I want you to catch verse, in verse 20 later. Because it says that what was known about God is plain to them. It's perceived God through his creation. And these things have been made so everyone can see God. But they are what? Without excuse because of that. Now remember my story about it's not my fault. We love to make excuses, even for our sin. 
We love to cover. We love to say, it's not my responsibility. But as humankind goes, God has created. We are without excuse. What can be known about God is plain in creation. For people that believe in evolution, for people that have had their minds, they're suppressing the truth. They want to believe all these different things. It's like, look at the mountains, for crying out loud. Look at the sunset. This stuff just doesn't come from cosmic sludge. You have been given all these things. What could be known about God is clear and plain to you. But what do we do as a people? We suppress the truth. We make excuses. We don't want to believe it. That suppressing of the truth is kind of this objectionable, I don't want the truth to rise to the surface. And because of the sin in our hearts, that's what we do all the time. I was a little boy who fished all over the basement floor, was trying to suppress the truth so I could get out of punishment. Yeah, I don't, I don't know, like... Maybe somebody broke into our house? Like, I don't know how the rocking chair got over there and like all of us aren't like bound up in ropes here. I don't know. Trying to do, that's our nature. We just suppress the truth because we fear the punishment. And so our nature, when our sinful hearts start ramping up, it's just like, oh, we don't want that to come out because we want an excuse. But Paul says in Romans 1, every person that's ever walked the face of this earth besides Jesus himself, God himself, is without excuse. You can't blame anyone else. And we'll do everything to get out of it, but God has made himself known. And because of sin, because of our wiring that way, we have worshipped anything else but him. Even though we can see God in everything, our total inability, our total depravity blinds us to him. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, as we often do. They became fools. And verse 23, and we do that, don't we? Exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. We worship the creature often in our lives. That's why we don't get to read Romans 1 and just say, man, Look at all these people. We do that. We have to come up against Romans 1 and realize the sin that we have caused against God, the wrath that's done. Now, in Christ, again, that punishment is removed by his grace. But we can't just say, oh, look at the rest of the world. This is because of sin Jesus had to come. I always say churches that, I don't understand churches that don't talk about sin a lot. Because if you don't have sin and that's not the big problem with humanity, there's no need for Jesus. There's no reason for God to send his son to the earth to die for that. There's just no need if this isn't the problem. And we need to understand that. And so what is God's response in sin? Three times do you see this phrase in verses 24 through 31. God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up in three ways. In verse 24, it says God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity and the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. You see here that worship is affected. That he gave them up and they worshiped. They worshiped. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Worship becomes the problem. So God gives them up. He says, you want to worship that thing? I'm just give you up to that. It's your choice to follow after those things. Because of your sin, that is what you're wired to do. And think of all the ways you and I do that. When we are caught in sin, when we are living in a life of sin, our worship of God is non-existent. We have the lust of our heart. We chase after things. We worship other things more than we worship God because of our sin. Our hearts just go after those things. 
And then he goes on in verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Relationships are now affected unnaturally. And I would say this about the sin of homosexuality is so clearly spelled out in Romans 1 here. It's just unavoidable. So whatever you think about that cultural sin or that it's not a sin, it's just spelled out for us right here in Romans 1. I've often met with people that say, well, I don't know if that's really a sin. I'll say, I just, just read this. I don't know what else to say about that. But I will say this, it is just another sin. It is not the grossest of sins. It is a sin that is in a category of that entire list of lying and cheating and adultery and stealing and all of those things that you and I say, well, that's not so bad, but that's bad. Remember? We look at Romans 1. Well, look, that's what everybody else's problem. And we start compartmentalizing people groups, which is what really has happened in our society over this issue. It's become this group over here, and the rest of us aren't as stained by sin. And the church has done a horrible job of isolating a sin area instead of looking at ourselves and saying, man, do we all need Jesus because we are all covered in the muck and shame of sin? Do we not all need to be plucked from that lifestyle? Do we not all worship creature rather than creator? Do we not worship ourselves? Do we not pride in ourselves? And is that not just as bad? Which is why Paul comes to the church in Rome here and says, do you know where you came from? Because if you don't understand sin and the, the bad news of the gospel, it will shape, listen to this, what is our two things? Going on mission and how you live together in harmony. The church over the cultural issue of homosexuality has been split and divided. The world has been split and divided over this issue. Why? Because we don't understand sin. And it affects the way we think. We don't understand that that sin is a sin, and it's just like all the other sin that we commit, and all of it has the wrath of God revealed against it. And this isn't about that issue. It's about sin as the issue. And so in verse 28, he continues. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God did what? He gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with a manner, all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy. Just, I'm going to stop here for a second. I'm just going to read this list one more time. And which one of us is off the hook on this list? Which one of us could say, not my fault. Let me read this list again. If this has ever been committed by you, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Anybody in the room like that? Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. That is not a list that you and I get to look at and say, I got like two out of 10. That's not that bad. That's like, no, like one out of all of that would be enough. We're no better. There is nothing in us. There is no one righteous. No, not one. That is our list. That is the sin. That is the bad news. And you and I were created for God, by God, for worship. And that's where verse 32 comes along. Though they know God's decree 
that those who practice such things deserve to die. We know that because of the way that we're wired. We are wired and created for worship. We are still in the image of God. We are fallen, sinful image bearers, but we are in the image of God. Do you know that's why Jesus, when, you know, we misunderstand that in the Gospels when the Pharisees try to trick Jesus and they go to him with the coin with Caesar and they say, Jesus, should we pay taxes? And Jesus, in his wisdom, said, whose image is on that coin? And it says, Caesar. And he says, well, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give to God what belongs to God. You know what we wish in looking at that passage, which he basically said, but I wish it would have just been more clear? Whose image is on you? God's. God's image is on us. Caesar's image was on the coin, but God's image is on us. Even in our sin, we are human created in his likeness to worship him. And he was saying, your image, you're bearing the image of God. So give yourself to God. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. But since you are the image bearer of God, give yourself to him. And we know that, though we know that we practice this, these things deserve to die. They not only do them, we do them. But what else do we do? We give approval to those who practice them. We just kind of look at sin and say, yeah, I'm fine with that, which is why the believer, clothed in the righteousness of Christ by the Spirit and dwelling in him, says, how do I deal with that? How do I, how do I not judge another person? And, and yet, how do I like, not say something because I don't want to condone the sin? And we have to remember two things about that. One, we're not the judge of the unbelieving world. Jesus is. What we are about, what we need to be about is the gospel, the full gospel. Here's the bad news. You and I are caught in sin. Here's the good news. God has sent his son Jesus to save us from that. And that is what Paul is saying. That is what Paul is trying to teach here, that sin has totally clouded us as a people, which is why even though we know what is right, what God says, our heart still rebels. We are naturally rebellious towards God. And we run towards death every time. We run towards it every time in sin. It's like we can't help ourselves. Friends, we need rescuing is what we need. I need to know of my sin and total depravity apart from Christ. Total inability to save myself. Why? Because it is only when I understand sin rightly that I will magnify and worship Christ appropriately. It is only when I understand my sin rightly will I worship Christ appropriately. And as we close, do we need to know this? Yes, this is weighty stuff, but here is why this is important. Here are just three implications of this doctrine of total depravity, why it's important that we understand what Paul is saying here. The first is that this doctrine affects the way we disciple and discipline our children. Think about it. If you disciple or discipline a child, that root word is there, and you don't believe in the doctrine, doctrine of total depravity, it will change the approach the way that you discipline a child. Our greatest need, or our kid's greatest need, is to know they were, are without excuse, which is why my kids, and I hope they're listening right now, when they say, it's not my fault, I get so angry because I know that is our fault. My kid needs to know this. And do I go over the top and overreact? Yes, I do. I'm a complete sinner in that. Thank you, my kids say, finally acknowledges a mistake in this thing. I'm doing it publicly. I'm not a good dad that way. But it's just the gospel. It's like, no, we need to know this. I need to continue to bring God before my kids in that way. 
Because if we don't understand our children and their greatest need, we look at these behaviors in our children, we just try to correct them. But we don't understand the real reason behind them, that these small, beautiful little cherubs, these so-called innocent ones, the reason why they do what they do, the reason why you don't have to tell a small child to learn the word no, is because they're Romans 1. One of the reasons that God makes human babies so small is so they won't kill their parents in their sleep. That's why. Michael's like, Ellie even? Yes. No one righteous. No one seeks God. Even these kids, these precious little ones that we love, you better believe it. And if you don't miss, if you miss that, you miss the big picture. And you will parent your child towards raising him good and trying to correct behaviors and not pushing them towards the feet of Jesus. That's what we do as parents. That's what we ought to do to put the gospel before our child and say, no, it actually is your fault and it's my fault too. That's why we need rescuing. The second thing is this doctrine affects the way we share the gospel. Think about it. There's a difference between the way that you share the gospel with a person that you believe is kind of bad and one that you believe is totally depraved. If someone is just kind of bad, then you aren't as serious about the rescue mission. After all, they go to church, they do some good things in the community. I don't know, like maybe that's their deal. But if they're kind of bad, you don't give your life to the mission of the gospel because they're, they're kind of bad, but that means they're probably kind of good too. So why do I need to uproot my life? Why is this so important? Because it's the only thing that counts. And that's the third thing. This doctrine also affects the way that you hear and receive the gospel. If I feel like I'm a pretty good person, I'll never comprehend the depths of my own sin and the depths of my need for Jesus. If I feel that I'm a pretty good person, I will never come to a place where I magnify Christ rightly and worship and adore him in a way that he should be worshiped and adored because I do not comprehend the vast magnitude and difference between him and me. That's why I must decrease and Christ must increase. I need to understand there's a huge chasm there. No one good Nothing righteous, completely righteous, completely faultless. That is my Redeemer. And if I understand that rightly, that chasm, I will magnify and worship Christ appropriately because I will understand what God has done in sending him. So Romans 1 is bad news. It's very bad news. And it might be bad news for you who are living apart from Christ but without the bad news, you just do not understand the goodness of the good news. Amen? But for the grace of God, this is who we are apart from Christ. And unless we grasp this, we will never properly understand or appreciate our debt to Christ. And our problem is this, as we close. Our problem is often, we believe this about everybody else but us. We look back on our lives and before Christ, if the truth were told, we actually believe that there is some inkling of good that Christ must have seen in us, that he must have said, oh, there was something in you that I just wanted to bring up. No, we should be as the Apostle Paul. I am the chief among sinners. And this isn't to throw ourselves a pity party. This is to worship. This should propel us in worship. God, by his grace, looked at me, saw nothing, and still loved me. And that is for you today. 
You can sit here and having done whatever you've done on a list, even you're looking at me all mad right now. And God says, I still love you. I want you. I came to rescue you. Folks, this is why the gospel is good news, because the fact of the matter is you and I have nothing good in us. And yet God, being great in mercy, because of his great love, which he has loved us, he did just that. While we were yet sinners, he did that. Christ came and died at the right time for the ungodly. And it's because of his finished work at the cross and his shed blood that we are able to be saved. And I hope you know that. I hope that you know Christ, that you can praise him and worship him, that you are a new creation declared righteous by his blood. And if you do not know Christ, I pray that he would open your eyes to himself today. I want to just have Michael come up and we are just going to just reflect on this song as we commit ourselves to God, as we just think about where we are with him. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would draw us all to the altar. Father, that we would be drawn into your presence, that we would know the weightiness of our sin. And Father, that we would confess it freely before you. Father, that that it would propel us and compel us to share the gospel more passionate. Would you awaken us as a people to not just do church and mission as normal, that we would look out in our world and see people are in desperate need of Jesus? Would you help us to see that in ourselves, how desperate we are for you? Father, would you help someone in this room? Would you draw them towards your son right now? Because they've never understood the weightiness of their sin, but have never been overwhelmed so much by the grace and love that you've given in Christ. Father, may we sit now and just reflect on your goodness and praise you and be drawn to you, we pray in Jesus' name. I want to leave us with this. This is what we get to do every week to come into this place, remembering how good God is to us, recapturing what was read earlier. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is what we've been afforded. I pray that we would live in God's goodness, that we'd give our life to the mission. If you want to know more about how you can become a new creation, find me afterwards. Find one of our elders. Find somebody at the green lanyard. They'll tell you about how God can change and transform your life in Christ. Amen. Have a blessed day and go in peace.